0: Good morning, family. I'm going to say that just a few more times. And i have too many more times to say it. It's one of my favorite things to say. Good morning, family. And I'd like to lead us in prayer uh, as we come to the Lord's word. I'd like to read a few verses from Lamentations 3 and just lead us in prayer. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Lord, we confess together that we are here by your grace, not because of what we've done, but because of what you have done and who you are, and therefore who we are in Christ, that we are here, that we've not been consumed in our foolishness, in our sin, and our rebellion. Thank you for your mercies, which never fail. Thank you that your mercies are fresh every morning. Thank you. Lord, there are a lot of things in our lives. But today we say together, the Lord is my portion. Jesus, we want you. Jesus, we need you. All the other stuff is just stuff. You're the one we need. In you is life and life alone. So, Lord, you are our portion. Our hope is in you. We seek you. And we thank you for your salvation. That we found when we began to seek you that you were already seeking us. Behind the scenes, in every way, around every corner, there you were. And because of that, here we are. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your salvation, which has cleansed us of our sin and brought us into your beautiful, wonderful family of the redeemed. Glorify yourself, Lord, in this assembly today. Thank you for your word. Let your word speak to each of us, Lord. Enable this man to speak today. And enable all of us to hear. Let our hearts be just so pliable in your hands today. For your glory among your people. And that all would know you. That all here in this place would come To hope in you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. There are a lot of famous last words out there. Some are funny, some are sad, some are theatrical, some are unmentionable in our family friendly setting. (laughs) But a few I can mention as examples Uh, Leonardo da Vinci. He said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Well, then I think we're all in a little bit of trouble. (laughs) Harriet Tubman, her famous last words were, swing low, sweet chariot. That's good. Nostradamus. He said, tomorrow I shall no longer be here. And by the way, I think he was right. (laughs) Karl Marx. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Well, I hope that's present company accepted. (laughs) The one I like the best is so simple. The last words reportedly spoken by Steve Jobs, uh, founder and CEO of Apple, he said, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. And that's pretty hard to beat. Summarizes pretty well how I feel as I approach the end of my pastoral ministry here among you. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I'm a bit overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed at the faithfulness and the mercy of God as I look back over 35 years of ministry. I'm overwhelmed at your patience and kindness and support for me over the years. And I'm just overwhelmed that I have had the privilege of being called your pastor for most of my adult life. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So today is the first of my three final messages as your senior pastor. In a short series I'm calling my famous last words, Uh, how do I summarize the many final words and thoughts that I would like to share with you? Uh, It's just, it's not easy. I'll do the best I can. I should say, I truly hope that these will not be my last words. I mean, I do hope to live a few more years and have a few more things to say. Uh, and I let, let's be honest, I doubt very much that these words will become famous. But for the rest of this month, that's what you've got. These are the famous last words I have for you as I retire and as you transition into the next chapter of ministry here at New Life Philadelphia, and as we all see what God has for us next. I think it's going to be an exciting time. So for today, what I want to say is, water the seeds. Water the seeds. I'm going to talk about four ministry seeds that have been planted here at New Life Philly that need watering. I was able to get it down to just four. That was hard, although there's, there are just so many more. But these four are very much on my heart, and I just wanted to share them with you today. Uh, Let's read our text for today. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Uh, This is the Apostle Paul uh, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Down to verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ, the Word of God. Planting and watering seeds. My task for the last 35 years could be summed up that way. My task has been to plant the ministry seeds of New Life Church. And soon a new pastor, along with Pastor Tim and the elders and, and all of you, in the next season, are going to be watering the seeds. What Paul says here about all church leaders is very humbling and spot on. He says, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? Just servants of God who plant and water. Neither one is really anything. But only God, only God who makes it grow. He is really something. Amen? He is really something. I'm not anything special. I'm just a servant who had the privilege of getting to plant some seeds around here. And we've all been doing some watering together. But it's God. It's God who has enabled them to grow. This is his grace to us in Jesus Christ, pure and simple. Many seeds have been planted here at New Life over these years, and we've experienced a lot of fruit. And these seeds need to keep being watered. Another way of looking at it, says Paul, is that the foundation has been laid. The foundation is Jesus. It's not any man. It's not any group of people. It's Jesus Christ. You can't build on any other foundation except Jesus Christ. The foundation of New Life Church is Jesus Christ. Crucified for sinners. Risen from the dead to give life To all who trust in him. That's the gospel. Be careful that you build on him. You'll be tempted to build on so many other things. Be careful that you build on him. The Lord has assigned to each his task, says Paul in verse 5. Each one of you has a task. Each one of you has a task. God has assigned it to you. Do you know what it is? These tasks change as we move through different seasons of life. Right now, my task is shifting, and yours is going to be shifting too. But all of you will be watering ministry seeds that have been planted here. I'm asking you to cherish these seeds, water these seeds, cultivate these seeds, and your understanding of them. My prayer is that you're going to grow a big, beautiful, fruitful field from these seeds like the world has not seen before around here. But each one of these seeds must be experienced. You have to live them. Not just think about them or talk about them. They can't be abstract. You have to live them. Seed number one, God loves you, not what you do. God loves you, not what you do. Some of the most important texts in the Bible for my life and my ministry have been the gospel accounts where Jesus is baptized and then immediately sent out into the wilderness. The Father speaks from heaven over Jesus at his baptism. And what does he say? You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Wow! Jesus has done absolutely nothing up to this point. He hasn't done any miracles. He hasn't healed anybody. He hasn't preached any sermons. In his just being, the Father loves him. He's the Father's beloved. He's anchored in the Father's love. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. In other words, his Father loves him because he loves him. Why? Because he loves him. That's the refrain of the gospel, that's the heart of the gospel. And after that, the Holy Spirit sends Jesus out into the wilderness where Satan tempts him for 40 days and 40 nights. And have you ever noticed that the temptations are all about doing? The temptations are all about doing things. The temptation is, if you really are the beloved one, if you truly are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. You're hungry. It's okay. You can do it. The temptation is, if you really are the beloved one, the Son of God, You came for the kingdoms of this world. I can give them to you. The easy way. You can have them. All you have to do is worship me, says Satan. You can do that. The temptation is, if you really are the beloved one, the son of God, you want the world to know who you are. Jump off the temple. Your father will catch you. Everybody will see. You can do it. It's okay. You're doing it for ministry purposes. In other words, Jesus, do something, will you? This is the constant pressure on each one of us. Do something. Prove yourself. Do something to show that you're worth loving, that you're really the beloved of God, that you're not actually a nobody in life. Prove it. But Jesus resists that temptation. He remains anchored in the love of the Father. And it is only out of that place of being the beloved son that he arises to go and do the things that saved us. When you do things without being anchored in God's love for you in Christ, that's what we call a false self. It's not really you. You're trying to be somebody you're not because you don't know who you really are. You're not anchored in the Father's love. You're not finding your identity there, in Christ, and in Christ alone. You're trying to prove yourself by what you do or don't do. As someone once put it, at the end of your life, God will not ask, why were you not Moses? Moses was a great leader, right? At the end of your life, God will not ask, why were you not Moses? He will ask, why were you not you? Why did you try to live someone else's life? Why didn't you slow down enough so that you could get the courage to uniquely embrace the life I've given you? The best gift you can give your family, your friends, your coworkers, our community, our city, our world, is for you to plant your life in the love of God in Christ. Not in what you do or what you don't do. Our culture desperately needs this truth to live by. They do not know another way. But you know a better way in Jesus Christ. We can only bring the world what we have experienced ourselves. You know, you can't take others where you have not gone yourself. So don't live like a human doing. You are not a human doing, are you? What are you? You are a human being. That's right. You were made to be loved in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. A man named Jean Vanier, a former professor of philosophy, he's got the perfect name for it, doesn't he? Jean Vanier. He left all of that behind about 50 years ago to start a community for severely disabled adults called the Arch. He tells the story of a woman named Francoise who came to one of the arch houses. Françoise was severely handicapped. She could not speak. She could not dress herself. She could not feed herself. She was incontinent, so she was in diapers. Thirty years had passed since she first came into that community, and now she was also blind. Someone came to visit the community, and they said to the leader, what's the point of keeping Françoise alive? The leader of that house said, well, madam, I love her. That was it. I love her. It's like if your grandmother has Alzheimer's and someone says to you, why keep your grandmother alive? Your answer is, because I love her. She doesn't have to do anything to merit being alive or being loved. She's made in the images first dozen years of our church, uh, we were a very busy people. God did a lot. We did a lot. We grew fast. We quadrupled in size in our first dozen years. We planted a church. We started ministries. We sent out missionaries. We were busy. We were doing. And it was good. We were often weary. I have to tell you, looking back, the perspective that I have now I think I spent much of my early years as a pastor trying to be somebody I was not. It's kind of like David, you know, putting on the armor that belonged to Saul, kind of clanking around in it. It wasn't mine. It didn't fit me. But in 1995, as many of you know, my journey, my spiritual journey, my life, took a sudden hard turn into weaknesses that it finally, eventually forced me to find my life in God's love for me in Christ, despite what I had done or could do or could no longer do. So for me, first there was the post-polio syndrome diagnosis. Some years later came a clinical depression. And some years later that was followed by alcoholism. And you know, those became the strange vehicles that God put to his use to deliver the message to me, to this poor man, this broken man, that he loves me in Jesus. He loves me, not what I do, not what I have done or can't do or don't do. And I have to tell you, those were hard lessons. Those were the hardest lessons I've ever had to learn. And I have a feeling uh, that I'm going to have to learn this all over again in retirement when I'm not doing things. (laughs) That's all I've ever known, by the way. You know, that God loves me, not what I do. I'll need your prayers. Remember that God loves you. In Jesus Christ, God loves you, not what you do. This is the gospel of his grace. Seed number two. God is hidden in the margins of life. It's taken me a lifetime to to realize this. God is hidden in the margins of life. In the margins of life are people who are poor, unstrategic, unimpressive, orphans, widows, the disabled, the mentally challenged, the mentally ill, children who can't speak for themselves, the elderly, addicts, criminals, the ones who are in the background, the ones who are broken, the immigrants without papers. They're all people the world ignores or holds in a kind of quiet contempt. They don't fit in. They don't contribute. When you open a book, you don't read the margins. You don't even look at the margins. You don't even notice the margins. Because all you care about are the words on the page. That's why you bought the book. That's how life works, too. As you go through life, you see the main people, but you don't tend to see the people in the margins unless you look hard and often. But God is hidden in the margins, among the marginalized. That's where Jesus went. That's where he lived. That's where he served. That's where he ministered. The people in the margins are not on the cover of People magazine. They're not in Glamour, Vogue, or Times Person of the Year edition. They don't make the cut. Funny thing is, Jesus says that when you have a banquet, invite the people in the margins. Invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. When we started New Life Church 35 years ago... Nobody wanted to plant a church in this community. Nobody wanted to live here. It was a marginal place. But we found out that God is hidden here in the margins. He is here. Amen? He is here. It's amazing. This is something that I had to learn the hard way. I learned big time in my addiction. When I became, I became one of the marginalized. Yes, I became a marginalized person, even to some of you, to some in the church. And I know that, and I understand that, and I grieve that, and I can't change that. I can't do anything about that now. But I want to tell you, much to my surprise, I found out that those who are marginalized and considered failures or losers actually bring sanity and balance to the world. They help us find our equilibrium about what's important. Things like love, like gentleness, like openness, like understanding, like community. The marginalized ground us. They show us that life is not about power, fame, money, competition, or success. It's not about getting into the best schools or getting another degree. The push of the world is always to pretend we're big. We're not. We're not. We're broken, like everybody else. And when we are with people in the margins who are in a depth of weakness and vulnerability and brokenness... There we discover a lot about ourselves. We get in touch with our own brokenness and our own humanity. Martin Luther King Jr. said one time about the people we tend to hate or despise. He said, we will continue to despise people until we have loved and accepted what is despicable in ourselves. We don't know how to do that. Have you been able to accept what is despicable in yourself? People in the margins help us to do that. They are a gift to us. They help us to see ourselves right sides and to know our hearts aright. New Life is now an established, influential church. We have some prestige, some resources, some people. We have some power, some privilege. But we're not building an empire here. So much has been freely given to us. And we are to give it away just as freely. This seed God has been growing in us for 35 years means that we take all of that and we keep moving to the margins. We just keep moving to the margins. Being part of New Life Church is an enormous privilege. I count it one of my greatest privileges in life being incarnated as Jesus in this marginalized part of Philadelphia. We think we're giving when we do that, but we're actually receiving. Because we'll be meeting Jesus and some amazing people in the margins. God is hidden in the margins of life. Seed number three, race matters for community and witness. Race matters for community and witness. This is one extremely complicated and painful issue. Let me say at the outset that behind hatred, prejudice, and racism are demonic forces that are so powerful you'd rather just avoid the whole matter. But we can't afford to do that as followers of Jesus. It will cost us our Christian community and our witness. So many things in our world are defined by race where you live, where you can live, what community you can be part of, what school you let your kids go to, how far up you can go in your job, who you can be friends with, who your kids can be friends with. That's the way of a divided world. But this has no place in the body of Christ. This has no place in the body of Christ. It's a sin issue. It's a discipleship issue. It's a justice issue. It's a reconciliation issue. The gospel demands it. We must take this seriously if we want our community and our witness to be in harmony with the movement of God's kingdom among the nations. Jesus, through his blood, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He has created a new race a new people, a new humanity. It's called Christians. Jesus broke down that dividing wall through his blood at the cross. The first Christians understood this. They got it. They saw themselves as part of a worldwide, multiracial, multicultural family that transcended all nationalities, all social, racial, economic, and class barriers. one of the central tasks of the early church in bringing the gospel to the world was breaking down those barriers in the name of Jesus. It says in the book of Revelation that we're going to gather before a heavenly throne one day. People of every tribe, nation, and language before the throne of God crying out praise to Jesus. Every culture and every race is going to bring its style of praise to that worship celebration. I want to be there. (laughs) Do you want to be there? (laughs) Wow. Look, we are invited here on earth to get a taste of that. And we get to offer it as a gift to a world that is filled with hatred and genocide, that is deep in the human heart. And we get to say, Jesus is alive, and he is our peace. Jesus is alive. And he is our peace. There is a power that is able to take hatreds and transform them, even though the hatred may go back hundreds of years. We've been blessed here. Uh, we started down the road of many colors, one blood, about 20 years ago. Many colors, but one blood in Christ. And we're still on that road. I've got to tell you, that dream just captured my heart. When God plopped us down in this very diverse community, that dream captured my heart. I I wanted people to be able to walk in here and see, not hear about or think about or talk about, not just that, but to see, to see the glory of God in the all-nations family that he is redeeming in this world. I wanted people to see that. That dream still has my heart. And we're still on that road, trying to be a thriving family of nations in the city here at New Life Church. We've come to know that you're not going to change people by law and force and government decrees. It's going to start by a change of the heart. And a transformation on the inside is going to come from Jesus alone. And then, then, justice will and should flow down from there like a river. So My invitation is for you to listen to the stories of people who are different from you. Listen to the stories of people who come from a different place than you do. You're going to learn a lot. I can't tell you the joy it has been for me to sit here over the years and see the beauty, all the colors of the tapestry that is here in this room. And I pray that you will water this seed for another 20 years to honor Jesus and offer his peace, his gospel peace to others, no matter where they may come from. Seed number four. God's ways are mysteriously small and slow. <laughs> God's ways are mysteriously small and slow. Jesus told a parable about a mustard seed. The kingdom of God, he said, is like a mustard seed. Although it's the tiniest of seeds, it grows to become the biggest of trees. You may be tempted in the years to come to be polished, to be big, to be impressive. You might be tempted to compare yourself to other people or other churches, and you'll think, mm, we don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes. We haven't done what they've done. We forget that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's small, it grows slowly, slowly but surely. Jesus is saying that what God is doing often looks insignificant. You know, it looks powerless, it looks like nothing. But actually God's kingdom is advancing and growing right on schedule. It's according to plan, his plan, so that he, not we, but he gets the glory. Do we forget. Jesus did not look very powerful. There was nothing about his appearance that would draw people to him. Herod, well, he had built massive temples. Rome had a glorious city. Athens had Plato and Aristotle teaching brilliant philosophy. And here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus, teaching in Galilee of the nations, the armpit of Israel, in confusing parables... To uneducated farmers and fishermen, it didn't look that great. It looked defeated, powerless, weak from the get-go. Jesus did not overwhelm people with his intellect, his wisdom, or his greatness. Although he was all that, no, he came as the humblest servant of all. We don't have to do things to get the city or the mayor to pay attention to us so that maybe they'll write about us in the Inquirer, so that people will say, oh man, that church, that church is powerful. That's that's sexy. I want to go there. Nope. The smallness of the kingdom has always been a scandal. And it will continue to be so. Things are not as they appear to be. Judas. Judas did not sign up for the mustard seed. So what did he do? He quit, went somewhere else, and eventually killed himself. He didn't like the mustard seed thing. Too small. Too slow. Look, if God had answered all the prayers I prayed for New Life Church in the early years, we would not be sitting in this room today. I would have wrecked the church. I know that. I see that now. Because I wanted big, and I wanted it fast. But when I thought we were going backward, we were going forward. And when I thought we were going forward, we were actually going backward. It's very humbling. It's all very humbling. Very slow. But I can tell you this. God will not be rushed. How many of you have tried to rush God? How'd that work out for you? (laughs) God will not be rushed. You can rush all you want. But he will not be rushed. God's ways are small and they are slow, mysteriously and sometimes frustratingly so. But in the end, it is glorious and it is full of amazing grace and beautiful love and it will one day cover the whole earth. That's the plan of God. Personally, I think the greatest lessons that have come out of New Life Philly so far have come out of failure and suffering. Uh, That's certainly true in my life. So don't be discouraged by small things, by small seeds that grow slowly. This is God's normal way of working. It's that mustard seed. So here's my invitation. Remain with Jesus even when you want to quit. Abide. Stay. Stay with him even when you see nothing. The kingdom has always been a mustard seed until the time it becomes a massive tree. Friends, look, we've only just begun. We have only just begun. Who can imagine what lies ahead? Paul says, I planted, now Apollos is going to water, but it's God who makes it grow. I got to put down some seeds, you get to water them, and God is going to make them keep growing. That's his work. New Life Philly is probably going to look different as God grows it in the years ahead. I don't doubt that you're going to find yourself saying at times, it just doesn't look the same anymore. And you'll be right. It won't look the same, but it'll still be the same because it comes from the same kernel, the same seed, the same gospel. It's the same ministry DNA, the same spiritual seed. The same God, the same God, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I'm going to urge all of you, I don't know where each of you may be as you think about the transition and the change, I'm just going to urge all of you to hang in there, keep watering, stay put, don't leave, don't go anywhere for at least a year. I know that change is hard. It's hard for me, too hard. and I know it's tempting to think maybe now is the time for me to make a move to go somewhere else and here I am thinking I wish it were the time for me to stay <laughs> please I, I, I want to plead with you this morning to give yourself at least a year of watering the seeds here to see how they grow and what fruit they bear give yourself at least a year to bond with whomever will come after me as your next pastor. At least a year to let him and his family bond with you. So I'm asking you to be intentional about this. Intentional. Make a commitment to stay put for at least one full year before doing anything different. To help New Life Philly accomplish its vision to be a thriving family in the city. Don't leave. Stay engaged. Serve with love. Water the seeds. Grow in grace. You know, Shelley and I hope to be back with you in a year or so, if God wills. We know that's in his hands, but but that's our heart's desire, to be back with you in a year or so. And already, I can tell you, I can hardly wait to see you again and see what God will have done. So I think the only thing left for me to say for today is, I love you. I love you. I love you. Amen.